welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Together we are continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. We now come to the road to Calvary, the final steps that Christ took on his way to crucifixion. We'll be reading Luke 23, verses 26 to 32. So along with me will you hear the word of God. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put, put to death with him. This is God's eternal word. May it have its eternal impact on our hearts as we hear it. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Well, in our teaching, we're nearing the closing hours of history's greatest life, history's greatest life story. It's hard to imagine, but in 30 verses from now, we will have journeyed to Calvary. We will have watched the crucifixion, and the earthly life of Jesus will have been ended for the moment, 30 verses away. A life that began in eternity past, in the councils of heaven, as the marvelous Trinity created a plan to create humanity, to vanquish evil, and to bring a solution for human sin, and for the Son to come out of eternity and into time to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He entered the the human experience through the birth event in Bethlehem, and that was ground zero for the arrival of the Son on the planet, you could say, and Then he grew up in Nazareth and came of age, and at the right time, John the Baptist saw Jesus striding through the ankle-deep waters of the River Jordan, and John pointed at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the life work of Jesus began. Early months in Jerusalem, beginning to teach and beginning to make his presence known, and then two full years in that region of Galilee where He formed his disciples and the crowds gathered and peaked and then waned as his teaching grew more pointed and 
more pointed to the cross and what he would do for humanity there. And then the final months on his final journey to Jerusalem through Judea Judea, and all the miracles that punctuated that amazing journey to show that he was indeed God's son. His arrival at Jerusalem and what the churches celebrate is Palm Sunday when he arrived in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy as a king bearing peace heading to a cross but misunderstood by the people to be a political king who would relieve them from Roman oppression. And that final week in Jerusalem, the days had now passed and the people had become more disgruntled over their disappointment about him. And the high priests and the leaders had finally seen their plans come to fruition through a knock on the door by a betrayer named Judas and their plans were put in motion to betray and to arrest Christ. And he was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane and brought through what we now have called the broken justice of six corrupt trials, three trials by night by the corrupt Jewish leaders and three trials in the early hours of the morning before a corrupt and broken Pilate and Herod. Thoroughly, thoroughly unjust, but he finally is declared to be guilty and he's given over to the people. And in our Bibles, the last time we were in this text, we saw in verse 24 of Luke 23 that Pilate decided that the demand of the crowds and of the priests should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Who was that? Barabbas, a guilty criminal. He released him in the place of Jesus, the one for whom they'd asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And that finds us where this passage begins in verse 26. And they led him away to be crucified. Now, between verse 25 and 26, Luke does not include what some of the other gospel writers include. There were some, there was some time that passed between verse 25 and 26. We don't know if it was an hour or two, but in that hour or two, there was a world of torment that Jesus underwent. He was taken from Pilate's throne room downstairs to the dungeon that the Roman soldiers occupied and managed. And there he was mocked and he was beaten. And then he was scourged, tied to a post and, uh, and beaten with the, the bone-studded whip of the Roman lictors until the skin on his back was opened. You could peer in and see the whiteness of the ribs from the back of Jesus as muscle was torn and skin was shredded and blood poured down in rivers. And the scourging having been complete, they beat him some more for good measure. And then they pressed down a crown of thorns upon the head of the king of the Jews, threw his tattered clothes back upon him, shoved him out into the the, the main area and there he was surrounded by four Roman guards and so a world of torment physically and emotionally was undergone between verse 25 and 26 and now he is ready to be led away to what the gospel writers tell us was the place of the skull it's a place that we cannot fully identify today it was a place of execution by crucifixion somewhere outside the walls of Jerusalem it seemed to have the, the rocky image of a skull and so it was called the place of the skull we cannot locate it today but most scholars think that it was less than a mile away from where Jesus began his journey with the cross but it was a long long mile It was designed by the Romans to wind through the most public areas of that part of Jerusalem to humiliate Christ and to frighten anyone that would ever follow his example. 
Dr. William Barclay, who I don't agree with on many things theologically, but in many ways he is the modern expert on the life and times of, of first century life, talked about what that moment must have been like. He wrote, when a criminal was condemned to be crucified in Jerusalem at that time, he was taken from the judgment hall where Pilate had, had made sentence and sat in the middle of a hollow square of four Roman soldiers. And so you can see Jesus in the, in the middle of four soldiers led by a centurion, the execution team. His own cross was then laid upon his shoulders, Barclay writes, and he was marched to the place of crucifixion by the longest and most public possible route. While before him marched another soldier bearing a placard with his crime inscribed upon it. And we know that the Bible tells us that is precisely what happened. And the placard read, Jesus, King of the Jews, in three different languages, so that all who read it would understand why he was being crucified. Barclay writes, this was all done so it might be a terrible warning to anyone else who was contemplating such a crime. That is what they did with Jesus. He began, according to John's account in John 19, by carrying his own cross, but under its weight, his strength gave out, and he could carry it no further. Many have wondered as to why that was the case, but most likely it was because of the, the, the terrible torment he endured in the hours up to this point. Dr. William Edwards was a medical doctor, and he wrote an article on this moment in the life of Jesus and on the crucifixion to follow. And he gives us some background which helps understand why Simon of Cyrene was called to carry the cross. He writes, the severe scourging with its intense pain and deep blood loss most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. He's speaking clinically here as a physician. Moreover, hematodrosis had rendered his skin particularly tender. The physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, also contributed to his generally weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Christ's physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. So a doctor pronouncing him in serious condition, even as he shouldered this heavy cross. Dr. Barclay goes on and he says that Israel was an occupied country at that time. We know this. The Romans ruled everyone. And any citizen, Jewish or Roman, could be immediately impressed into the service of the Roman government. The sign of such impressment or momentary arrest was the tap on the shoulder with the flat of the blade of a Roman spear. And that's what happened in this moment. As Jesus sank beneath the weight of his cross, Barclay writes, the Roman and centurion in charge looked around in the crowd for someone to carry it. And out of the country into the city, there had come Simon from far off Cyrene, which is modern Libya. He'd come almost a thousand miles for Passover. No doubt he was a Jew who all his life had scraped and saved so that he might be able to spend one Passover in Jerusalem. And scarcely had he walked through the gate into the city when the flat of the Roman spear touched him on the shoulder and he found himself suddenly carrying a criminal's cross. This is the scene as the text opens in verse 26. It begins the way to Calvary. Now, commentators over the years have shown that Luke chose to describe this last mile by especially focusing on the different people or characters involved. And it's just like Luke to do that. Luke, of the four gospel writers, is known by scholars as the one who included more personal stories than any of the others. 
We think it might have been his, his, he was a doctor, his physician's fascination with people and his experience with the human condition. But he included all kinds of personal stories and told the greatest story with many of them. And so I'm going to follow his lead today. And I've called this message Tales on the Way to Calvary. Scholars over the years have identified different aspects of the characters that we'll study. I've put them in three groups. There were the priests, the crowd, and these mourning women that formed one group. And they tell a tale of people heading to certain judgment. And Jesus pronounces judgment upon them here. Then for a brief moment at the end of the passage, there are the two thieves described as criminals in verse 32. And they are on their way to something certain, death. But they also have the fleeting opportunity to face death by trusting in the one who was walking before them to Calvary. We'll see how that turned out. And then finally, there's the one that the story mentions and whose story broadens as we look at other scriptures. In verse 26, this Simon of Cyrene who comes into Jerusalem looking for the Passover of his life and then comes into an experience he never expected. And I believe his story is a tale of personal faith. I'll I'll attempt to show you that from the scripture. So let's walk through these tales on the way to Calvary together. And I wonder if you won't find yourself in one. Let's first of all look at the priests and the crowd and the women all together. They tell a tale of certain judgment. The text begins and it says, and as they led him away. Now, commonly people look at this and they they imagine that the day is referring only to the centurion and the four soldiers in that marching square going through the city. And we commonly believe that the crucifixion was a predominantly Roman Uh, event and that there were predominantly Romans surrounding the cross. Many people believe that, but that's not what the scripture tells us here. The narrative continues from earlier in the passage. I think verse 13 describes who went. It was in verse 13 of Luke 23, it was the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Pilate had gathered them back together and the text tells us in verse 24 that they are the ones to whom he gave in and he gave Christ over to their will, verse 25. And the narrative continues, they were part of who led him away. So yes, the Roman soldiers and the centurion were the formal leaders of this procession, but all alongside were the people and the priests. It wasn't a Roman detail alone. We know that the priests and the rulers and the crowd followed him all the way through that way of pain to the the place of Calvary. And the Bible tells us they stayed there until the deed was done, mocking him and daring him to come down from the cross and witnessing the physical end of Jesus. So that's who led him away. It was a great crowd of people. And it, it was composed of the priests and also the crowd And then finally, women who were mourning. So the priests, we know, had pressed for the arrest and trial of Jesus. The crowd had been persuaded to join in and condemn Jesus. And now we have them moving on the way to Calvary. And then we have this third group, the women of mourning. Look at verse 27. There followed him a great multitude of the people. There's the crowd. The priest probably leading the way and moving around them. And of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. The women are especially kind of uh, selected out here. And again, many people have wondered in history who they were. And some 
have thought that it might have been some of the women who loved Jesus, but most uh, look at this and say that that's not the case. There's no evidence that Mary Magdalene was there or the other women that surrounded Jesus and, and supported him, uh, Mary and the mother of Salome, uh, Salome and others, Mary and, and Mary Magdalene. There's no evidence that they were there. They, they came and surrounded the cross, some of them at a distance later. But they don't appear along the road to the cross. These women were professional mourners. We see that they were lamenting and, 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 fall, and, and mourning. And the word mourning there meant to strike the chest. And, and lamenting was to cry out in these loud, orchestrated cries. Who were these people? Well, they were professional mourners. We've already seen them in the gospel records when certain individuals had died and, and, and Jesus had been called to their side. He had to make his way through the crowd of these professional women who had part of their life story was to go to the house of a person who had died. And the tradition was you never wanted anyone to die and not have at least one mourner. Often they were paid for what they did. So this is probably what was happening. These female mourners had come along the side of this crucifixion procession. Dr. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary describes it this way. These women are not to be confused with his devoted followers, particularly the women who had followed him, who had traveled from Galilee and would stay with him to the bitter end and who would arrive at the cross later. Rather, these were devout women of Jerusalem who had come to bewail the death of a young man. They were local women, professional mourners who regularly turned out to witness executions. Some were acting out the part of professional mourners as they literally were beating themselves and bewailing him. And so that's who they were. And my interpretation of this is that they were there more out as a, as a professional and a social courtesy than out of a sense of personal loss. So you put all that together, and this first group of people, the priests, the crowd, and the women, were at, 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 at the very least indifferent to Jesus, and most of them were hostile to Jesus. And so they're different types of people, but as I look at it, they had two things in common. The first is that they had all rejected Christ. I think that's the part of the point of how Luke draws this out, particularly in the words that Jesus uses to them. They'd all rejected Christ. I mean, the priests certainly had. They had been plotting against him for months, seeking to destroy him. Then they finally arranged through the betrayal of Judas, the, the mock trials in, in the Jewish night. And then they pressed Pilate through all of Pilate's wishes against condemning an innocent Jesus. They finally pressed Pilate into this false verdict. So we know the priests had rejected Jesus. We know that the people had rejected Jesus. They'd become more and more angry in the final week because Jesus was not going to be the deliverer from Rome that they welcomed into the city. He began to preach again about the fact that their sin was their greatest uh, problem and their greatest barrier against God. And he had come as a savior. He had come to give his life as a ransom for them. The preaching of his cross work angered and confused them. And they were persuaded by the priests that they had been misled. And so they were easily stoked up outside Pilate's courtyard. And they became a people that went from welcoming Jesus on that Palm Sunday arrival to demanding for his crucifixion, crucify, crucify, they all all yelled in unison. And the women, well, they were there as part of everyday life. There was an indifference at the very least. They may have known a lot about Jesus, but there's no sign that they truly loved him. 
So they'd all rejected him. What had they rejected in those three years? They rejected the identity of Jesus as the true son of God. He was the Messiah and he proved it over and over again by fulfilling prophecies in the circumstances and the actions of his life, by the miracles that swept out of his life and from his hands that the Old Testament constantly predicted would be the sign of the arrival of the true son of God and by the words that he spoke themselves in fulfillment of prophecy but under divine power were words that some of the people in that crowd had heard. And some of them might even have said at one time, nobody has spoken like this man has spoken. All of that was forgotten now. It was passed over and they'd gone into unbelief and rejection. They'd rejected his identity. They'd rejected his mercy. All of the healings were forgotten. And the mighty work of his cross, when he said, I'm going to be, to pay, to be a ransom for you, all of that was rejected because they still believed in their good works and the power of their own religion. And they hated the conviction that Jesus brought on their hearts. And they wanted to earn their way into God's approval. And their religious pride made Jesus a spiritual enemy. So his cross work violated their works. So his identity they rejected, his mercy they didn't want, and his innocence they denied. It's interesting, in Luke 23, there are four different times when Pilate goes out to that crowd and he says, he has done nothing wrong, I want to let him go. John adds a fifth. Time after time after time, all of them, priests, people, surged against that, that judgment platform. And at the very last, they said, let his blood be on our heads. And so this is the rejection of Christ. You cannot deny that. So they had that in common. And here's the second thing the text tells us they had in common. Because they had all rejected Christ, they all faced certain judgment. This comes out of what happens as Jesus turns to this group of women that are surrounding him with this outpouring of professional grief. Look at it, verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said directly to these professional mourning women on either side, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He begins and he turns and confronts them. Think of the majesty of this moment as so many have pointed out. Jesus Christ in, in, the, in the physical agonies and exhaustion he was going through, unable to pull the cross down the street, blood loss, agony, mockery, knowing what he was now heading into, the hours of nailing and the hours of final death, not to mention the wrath of God coming upon him for sinners. And he's still in all of that, with all of that burdening him, turns and he speaks into their lives. Is he not the master of every moment? Is he not the mighty son of God even here? He turns to these women, stops them up short, takes command in that moment. The whole procession stops. The Roman soldiers stop. The centurion pauses and Jesus speaks. And he speaks a word of judgment. 
He, he, he speaks as they wail around him, and he warns them, and he does two things. He, he speaks a prophecy over them and over all the people in Israel and Jerusalem, and then he follows it with a parable. What's the prophecy? Verse 29. He, basically, Jesus, Jesus says in verse 28, don't mourn for me. I am in the will of my Father. I am walking in the will of my Father. I delight to do the will of my Father, and I'm about to do the greatest work in universal history for sinners. I'm in the path of my Father. Father, there's pain, but there is the joy of this. Oh, don't weep for me. You better weep for yourselves. You're heading to judgment. And then he makes a prophecy about it in the next verse. For behold, the days are coming. That's prophetic language. When they will say, blessed are the the barren, those who could not have children, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. He's talking about the fact that there is a terrible judgment that's going to come on them and everyone they represent. Daughters of Jerusalem was a phrase. He he was saying, listen, you represent all of Israel and all those who've rejected me. Because you've rejected me, judgment is coming. Now, Jesus had said this six other times in the gospel of Luke. You're familiar with it. I'll take you back to the most recent. Go back to Luke chapter 19. On that day when Jesus rode into the city several days before on the back of that donkey, they were rejoicing, thinking they were going to get a political savior. He wept over them because they were rejecting him as their personal savior. And in verse 41, as Jesus drew near to the city on on that day, the triumphal entry day, and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept out loud over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. They wanted relief from the Romans. Jesus came saying, oh, you need peace with God. And I'm heading to a cross to create that peace for you. But now they are hidden from your eyes, all the things that make for peace. They had rejected him. They'd missed him in increasing fashion for three years. And now he knew that in the days to come they would reject him at Pilate's throne room. Now his prophecy again here. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What was he predicting? Something that history tells us happened 40 years later, A.D. 70. I've taught you about it. The Roman armies under Titus surrounded Jerusalem, came into Israel, and destroyed the city. Jesus prophesied that God would allow that at the hands of the Romans as a judgment to them for rejecting Christ and his ministry. And history tells us that is precisely what happened. Now Titus chose an interesting way to to conquer Jerusalem because of the treasures that were within it. He didn't choose a frontal approach of driving through the walls. He chose to create a siege, and he starved the people of Jerusalem for many months. 
Josephus, the secular Jewish historian, wrote the most definitive history about this, and he writes that women and children suffered the most, just as Jesus predicted they were going to suffer. Oh, blessed are the, bar- are the barren and the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. You, you, will, you will years from now, women, if you're still alive and you, your daughters are alive, you will grieve over any woman that has a child when that judgment comes. You'll wish you never had a child because you'll have to watch your children suffer and then you'll suffer. History tells us under Josephus' writings that children suffered and women suffered and as the famine worsened, angry men moved through Jerusalem and they hunted down children to kill them and eat them. It became so desperate that even mothers killed and ate their own children. Josephus documents it. The depth and the darkness were supreme. Jesus said in verse 30, then people will be so desperate, they'll be so afraid of the Roman Roman lances and the crucifixions that would come if they were captured alive that they will say, oh, would that the mountains fall on us and the hills cover us. That's Hebrew language for saying, I wish God would just take my life. So Jesus is predicting here what happened in A.D. 70. And Josephus tells us after the siege wore down the people, Titus finally entered the city, and those that had survived the famine, (laughs) they didn't survive very long because they were crucified all around the city of Jerusalem. And he tells us that the crucifixions were so numerous that the Romans didn't stop until they ran out of wood. Jesus Christ, master of history in that moment, makes a prophecy. They had rejected him, and certain judgment was coming. And then he gives them a parable in verse 31 to further the warning. He says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's mysterious language. It's uh, hard to interpret. It's an, it was a Jewish way of speaking, kind of a, I don't know, a, a word picture. Most look at this and believe that Jesus was talking about the Romans. If they do these things, what they do in AD 70, is they're doing this now to me, and, and Jesus is probably represented here by the wood that's green. Jesus was a flourishing, beautiful son of God, perfect, sinless, always obeying and bearing fruit for the Father, and he was totally innocent. But God allowed this to happen to him anyway at the hands of these Romans. And Jesus was saying, if they do this to me and I'm innocent, imagine what they'll do to you and what God will allow them to do to you when when you're dry wood. That was an image of judgment from the Old Testament language. Israel was often talked about as a luxuriant vine or, or a fig tree, and Jesus often used that imagery. And Israel was supposed to bear fruit of love and trust of, of, of the Father and of God, but they regularly lived in sin, and, and there was no fruit, and they were dry and useless to God. That's my best attempt at explaining that. Some commentators, Robert Stein, feels the most likely interpretation is, quote, if God has not spared his innocent son from such tribulation by permitting his crucifixion, how much worse will it be for a sinful nation when God unleashes his righteous wrath upon it by permitting the Romans to destroy Jerusalem? 
And Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, this was a Jewish idiom meaning if I suffer this much and I am innocent, how much more will you suffer because you're guilty? Now, what were they guilty of? I already told you. Rejecting the identity and the mercy of Christ. How does all of this Old Testament drama apply to you in a new millennium world? Because the mercy and the identity of Jesus are still before you. He is who we preach. The Bible declares all of his mercies and his identity to you today. Your need for him as a sinner, his greatness for you as a savior. And the truth still holds that if you reject Christ, as these have, they were committed in their rejection. They they were dramatic in their rejection. Then here's the thing. If you've rejected Jesus like they have, you can expect judgment too. That's the biblical principle that we find here. I don't know where you are with Jesus Christ today, whether you're here or you're watching, but I know that in in many cases there are people that hear me talk about Jesus who have already gone around the corner and rejected him. If you've gone around that corner and you've rejected him, you can expect judgment. And Jesus prophesied it over their lives. That is the tale of the first group of people walking alongside that cross. Heed it. Don't join them. How about the second? Well, now we go down to verse 32, having covered the prophecy and the parable of Jesus in that moment. The procession moves forward again. It seems that behind Christ now, Two others, verse 32, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And so we see the procession going forward again. What about these two men? Luke mentions them here briefly, but I think he mentions them as kind of representative of the truly guilty sinner. Jesus moving before them, the fully innocent one but he's followed by two truly guilty people. It's in contrast to Christ, and even the language he uses to others, the Greek word is heteros. It was used to emphasize somebody who's entirely different. And Luke is is saying here, in contrast to this wonderfully innocent, majestic Savior, there were two thoroughly, entirely different others. They were criminals, and the word criminal there is pretty picturesque. It it, uh, it meant worker of evil, somebody who does evil. and It was an adjective describing somebody who committed gross misdeeds and serious crimes, and they had. They very probably had been murderers and thieves alongside the rebellion of Barabbas. But remember, their probable ringleader, Barabbas, from the last time we were studying this together, had been pardoned earlier that morning, hadn't he? The crowd had demanded him, a fully guilty man, a murderer, Oh, Barabbas had been pardoned earlier that morning and his innocent substitute, Jesus, was now walking on ahead of them to death. And so they see him. I can't help but think that, of course, they'd known of their own execution for weeks. They'd sat in the jail cells until this morning going over and over in their minds what it was going to be like to walk to 
the place of the skull and feel the nails through their own wrists and their feet. And, and yet they also knew that they were guilty. They, they, they said as much. But they'd also doubtlessly heard about Jesus. You couldn't have been around Judea in those months without hearing about Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, his claims. And now they are there in their final mile, perhaps watching him as his broken and beaten shoulders moved ahead of them. Maybe they had a chance to think, to ponder their guilt to know that their fate was an hour away and to think about this man, Jesus. Well, we do know that a few hours later, and we'll see it later in Luke's story, that one of those criminals contemplated his sin and this innocent man, and he turned to him and said, will you remember me in your kingdom? And he entered into an eternity with God. The other hardened his heart and he entered hell. Fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus. So how do we interpret those people on the way? Well, the thieves represent every sinner who has a last chance. Yeah, there's judgment pronounced on the crowd and the priests and the women, and it's a terrifying thing to know that if you reject Jesus, you face judgment. But here the thieves represent the mercy of God to the last. Oh, if you've rejected Christ, on that last mile of your life, you can still turn to him, confess your sin, and say, remember me in your kingdom, and he will remember you. They, they represent every sinner with a last chance. But you see, my friend, here's the trick question. How do you know that you're not on your last mile today? Do you know the ending of your life? Do you know the moment of your passing? Can you predict it, control it? No. You may be in your last mile. See the shoulders of the one bearing that cross ahead of you and trust him. Well, I admit that this passage in its weight brings us a pretty dark picture, right? Dark hearts face a dark eternity, and the Bible pulls no punches on this, but let's look at that final figure that the passage is most famous for, and when we do, I think you'll see the story brighten a little. The last character on the way to Calvary was this man named Simon, and I think his tale is not a tale of judgment. It's a tale of personal faith, and I will attempt to prove that to you. Let's go back up to verse 26. This all began as Christ was led out of the Roman dungeon, bloody and weak, surrounded by the execution squad, briefly shouldering his cross and carrying it for a path heading to the gate of the city, but stumbling somewhere along the way. And then Simon of Cyrene, who had walked into the city to celebrate Passover, feels the Roman spear flat on his shoulder. He's pulled out of the crowd. And he carries that cross all the way 
to the place of the skull. I mean, commentators have looked at his life and pieced together. They was, he was probably a Jew from Cyrene. We know that from the, the gospel text. Where was Cyrene? It's modern-day Libya. It was a very prominent city in the northern edge of Africa. And it was a very heavily Jewish city. And so Simon of Cyrene was very probably Jewish in background and faith. The Jews in Cyrene were so prominent, they actually had their own synagogue in Jerusalem as well when they visited on the great holy days. And every Jewish man wanted to visit Jerusalem if he could on Passover. We don't know if this had, there had been many Passovers for Simon, or maybe this was the first one he'd been able to afford to, to, to pay the expense of the hundreds of miles of journey from Cyrene. But the scripture tells us, and the other gospel writers fill this in, that he was coming into the city from outside the city. Why is that? Well, Jerusalem swelled by uh, about a couple hundred thousand pilgrims at Passover, and the city overflowed, and there were no rooms left in the city usually. And if you were late to the gate, quite literally, you had to rent a room in one of the the towns outside Jerusalem, or maybe... uh, Uh, set up a tent and go into one of the tent structures, the booths that they put up outside the city. So Simon may have had to take some lodgings outside the city, and early that morning on Passover day, he was moving into the city, very hurriedly going through the gate because he wanted to get to the temple so he could witness, maybe for the first time in his life as a Jew, the great ceremonies leading up to the Passover moment late in the afternoon. So he's headed for the temple, moving through the gate of the city. Suddenly this crowd pushes out, and it's so big and so raucous that it pushes him against the side of the wall. And he sees a man staggering under a cross, led out by an execution team with people shouting at him and women wailing for him. And then he sees the man stumble and the cross fall. And then he feels the dreaded flat of the spear on his shoulder and the centurion has directed him the scripture says he was actually momentarily arrested they accosted him they put their hands on him pulled him out from the side of the wall where he may have been cowering hoping that this whole scene would pass him by and he could get to the temple but that wasn't to be he was arrested and pulled under this blood-covered rough cross He might have protested and said, if I touch that, I'll be defiled and I won't be able to enter the temple area on Passover. And the Romans just shoved him back and laughed at him and said, this isn't a request. Get under that thing. And so he shouldered that cross and walked the rest of the way, thinking in his mind, what if these people think I'm the one that's the criminal, and I'm the one that's heading for crucifixion. It was defiling and humiliating, and the rest of that rock was a long and bitter walk, and who knows what, have go- what it was going through his mind as a faithful Jew with all of this humiliation and defiling. But we know that he got to the hill of Calvary. The cross got there. And the cross was laid on the ground and Jesus was nailed to it and it was raised up and dropped into a hole and Jesus was crucified. Now, it's at that moment that Simon of Cyrene could have left the hilltop and been lost to history. That may have happened, but I have a suspicion 
that it's more probable that he stayed and found his way into biblical history because you see we find him mentioned at different parts of the Bible and if you put those mentions together they tell us that there is a very strong possibility that he became a Christian and that he lived on in the first century church and that he led his family to Christ and that they became prominent sacrificial believers in the church at Antioch and in Rome. How do we see this? Well, it's from different places in which Simon and his family are mentioned. Let me again go to Dr. Barclay and, uh, and just kind of pick it up with some of how he describes it. But many other commentators, uh, James Stalker in his great work on the trial of Jesus, uh, Raymond Brown in his extensive work on, on this uh, experience in the life of the death of Christ, A.J. A. Robinson, R. Kent Hughes, among others. But William Barclay, uh, as well, believes that a faith experience emerged from this day in the life of Simon. He writes this, Try to imagine the feelings of Simon. He had come to Jerusalem to realize the cherished ambition of a lifetime, and he found himself walking to Calvary, carrying a cross. His heart was filled with bitterness toward the Romans and toward this criminal who had involved him in his crime. But if we can read between the lines, the story does not end there. It may be one of the hidden romances of the New Testament because Mark in his gospel describes Simon, and we go to Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, Mark's rendition of this identifies Simon, not just as Simon of Cyrene, but in Mark 15, 21, it says they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, like I described to you, and he is the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross. Now, you would not identify identify an individual, Barclay writes, by the name of his sons, unless those sons were well-known people in the community to which you were writing. Barclay says there is general agreement that Mark wrote his gospel and, and here before you to be delivered to the church at Rome. So the readers that Mark had in mind were the, the members of the church in Rome some 20, 25 years later. If he wrote for them, then they would have known Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon of Cyrene. There is general agreement, he says, that Mark wrote his gospel to the church at Rome. Now, what about the church at Rome? He says, turn to, to uh, the church at Rome and, and Paul's letter in Romans 16. And Paul ends his epistle to the Romans by greeting individuals who were prominent in the church at Rome at, that, at the same time period that Mark wrote his gospel. And what does Paul say in Romans chapter 16, verse 13? Greet who? Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. Who is Rufus? The son of Simon, Simon of Cyrene, described by Mark to the same group of Roman Christians. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother. Who would that have been? The wife of Simon of Cyrene, who has been a mother to me as well. He writes, it may be it may well be that this was the same Rufus who was the son of Simon of Cyrene and his mother was Simon's wife. The implication of these biblical texts is that Simon became a believer because of his experience on the hillside and that he led his wife to Christ when he returned to Cyrene and his sons to Christ. In fact, the evidence is that he planted a church there and that church went on to send evangelists out and they went to a place called Antioch and began to lead people to Christ and a church 
church was started there some years later. Why is the church of Antioch famous? Because that's where Paul began his ministry. And again, we may see a shadow. You look at it in verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch, this is some years later, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon. That's another way to describe the name Simon, who was called Niger, a a way of describing a person from the northern African place. And Lucius of where? Cyrene. So it's possible, and many Bible teachers believe, that Simon became a believer, returned to Cyrene, led his wife and sons to Christ, established a church there that later evangelized Antioch, and that Simon moved as a teacher to Antioch itself, and he was one of the ones who was praying in the church when Paul was singled out by the Holy Spirit, according to verse 2. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them, and they go out on their first missionary journey. No wonder Paul said that Simeon's wife was a treasure to me. Simon perhaps had a deep personal relationship with the Apostle Paul himself and was there when Paul was called to the Gentiles. I can't categorically prove that to you, but Barclay, among many others, believes that. He writes, as he picked up that cross that day, he must have looked into those eyes. He must have, right? In the midst of that street, Jesus would have looked at the one who took the cross from his shoulders and looking into those eyes after the cross was raised, Simon decided to stick around and witness the brutal proceeding. Stephen Cole, in his narrative, puts it this way. It was a day that marked him forever as Simon. This is how it possibly could have happened might have been that Simon saw, saw the sky grow dark over that cross and felt the earth shake as he watched the way in which Jesus bore his suffering, how he treated his persecutors, what he said to the penitent thief hanging beside him. He knew that this was no ordinary man. Simon would hear Jesus cry out the words of Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just before he died, Simon might have heard him proclaim, It is finished. And as Jesus breathed his last, he might have heard one of the centurions standing nearby exclaim, Truly this man was the Son of God. And Simon might have had a strange sense that he was right. And from that moment, he might have begun to wonder if this Jesus could possibly have been the Messiah the prophet Isaiah had written about, where the one upon surely our griefs uh, are, were placed. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. Maybe all of those great prophecies ran through his mind as he watched Jesus die on Calvary. Later that day, he would learn that the thick veil in the temple had been torn in two from top to bottom at that very moment symbolizing what Jesus, the Messiah, had done in opening the way for us into God's holy presence. Maybe he lingered longer. And some 50 days later, at the Feast of Pentecost, as he stood in the rim of the temple in the square and he heard Peter and the other apostles proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, it all came together for him, and maybe he, along with 3,000 others, might have put his faith and the one whose cross he carried. Maybe his life and his family were never the same. Maybe their trust in Christ began that day. Barclay concludes, it may well be that 
As he looked on Jesus, Simon's bitterness turned to wondering amazement and finally to faith and that he became a Christian and that his family became some of the choicest souls in the Roman church. It may well be that Simon from Cyrene, who thought he was going to realize a life's ambition to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, Passover in Jerusalem at last, found himself against his will carrying a criminal's cross, but that as he looked into the eyes of the one upon it, his bitterness turned to wonder and to faith. It might have happened. Many believe it did. If these commentators are right, and I, for one, believe they are, think about it. Whenever Simon of Cyrene went anywhere and he encountered believers, wherever he went, any church, his story would precede him. People would know who he was, and inevitably, somebody would take him aside and say, you're Simon of Cyrene? Yes. You carried his cross. Bless you for getting it all the way there. And maybe Simon would look at, that, look at them and say, oh no, bless him for dying for me there. You also got to wonder, if Simon would hear one verse that the church would use over and over again from Luke's gospel, and every time he heard it, it would strike him. Luke 9, 23, when Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Christianity in the time of Simon of Cyrene was a dangerous business. Taking up your cross meant suffering for him. It meant life losses and life hardship. And I got to believe Simon was only so glad to carry that. So these are the tales on the way to Calvary. Where do you find yourself among them? Have you fully and angrily rejected Jesus Christ? Then your judgment is certain. I beg of you, turn to him. Do you know your sin and yet you still cling to it and you haven't come to him? but you're contemplating the fact that you might be approaching your last mile and you know you've got to make a decision about eternity. Don't be like that one thief who hardened his heart. Be like the other who knew in the last mile to turn to Jesus. Or maybe you love him. Maybe you've looked into his eyes and you've seen his cross for what it is and you know that you love him like Simon did and you'll serve him. Follow him all the way as I know you want to do.